fasting, we're starting tomorrow, but I'm going to announce that during the sermon because today's sermon is going to be about fasting. So I'm going to incorporate that in there. Um, you know, when it comes to fasting, there are, you know, the question is, what is fasting? So what is fasting? At the end of the day, fasting is a type of prayer, um, but it is a type of prayer in which we are expressing to God how deeply we need Him by primarily not eating and sometimes not drinking as well. Uh, you, you know, you may have heard of all different kinds of fasts, like a Daniel fast or a media fast. We will be doing a media fast as well as a church and different types of things. But primarily, when we look at the Bible, fasting really is about going without food and sometimes going without food and water. Why do we do that? Because it is a form of prayer. It is a very powerful prayer. When we think about quote-unquote regular prayer, it's talking to God. Uh, fasting is like talking to God with your stomach. It's talking to God with an empty stomach. And it's a type of prayer that says, God, we need you this much. I need you this much that we are willing to go without food and perhaps even water because of how desperately we need you. Um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And hopefully you will be encouraged to join us in our New Year fast that starts tomorrow. And then next week we will come back to our series in the Gospel of John. Now, when we look at the Bible, there are many different reasons to fast. For example, we may fast because of our need. Um, so like in Acts 13, when the people at Antioch, at that church, they were fasting and they were worshiping God. And then in the middle of their fast, God tells them, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And that launched one of the greatest missionary journeys in the history of the church. And they were fasting, I believe, because this was a new church, the church at Antioch. And Jesus had ascended. He had poured out the Holy Spirit. The church had been born. And now the people were praying. They were fasting, crying out to God, asking him, Lord, what do we do now? What do we do as the church, as the people of God? And they were, they were so desperate to, for this leading from God that they were fasting. They were going without food. And God answered. And, and he started one of the greatest missionary journeys in the history of the church. Sometimes we may fast because of personal brokenness over our own sin. You, um, one reason that we see people fast a lot in the Bible is because they've come to a deeper realization and conviction about the sinfulness of their own heart or the sinfulness of their way of life and what they've been doing. And out of, out of penitence, out of a, a sense of repentance and conviction and grief over their sin, they will fast. They will go out without food to say to God, God, I really, I recognize in a deeper way than before how much my sin has grieved you. And, and, and as an expression of this recognition, I will not eat. I, I understand how deeply I've sinned against you, and it breaks my heart. I don't want to eat. Well, we may want to eat, but God, I will not eat as an expression of my repentance. Or we may fast simply because of the brokenness around us in the world, in society, maybe in, in, in a, per, a friend's life, and you just are broken about that, and you're saying, God, 
Lord, would you look upon this situation? I, this, this breaks my heart so much. The direction that our, our society is going in, the direction that our country is going in, the direction that my, my friends might be going in, that I am fasting. I am going without food because I am brokenhearted about this and I want to draw your attention to it. There are many reasons to fast that we see throughout the Bible. Now, one thing is very clear. Fasting is something that we should do. Now, there's, there's no place in the Bible where it says you have to fast. There's no commandment in there in the New Testament that says you must fast, but it is certainly implied. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said three very important words. When you fast. When you fast. I think what Jesus is saying here, it's implied that you are going to fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. I think it is assumed and understood that fasting will be a part of the Christian's life. Later in chapter 9, Jesus said this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What was happening here is that the religious leaders were accusing Jesus' disciples and saying to them, how come your disciples don't fast? We fast. Um, the disciples of John fast. But you guys don't fast. Why is that? And then Jesus basically told them, you know, you can't fast when the bridegroom is here. And I'm the bridegroom. When I'm here, it's a party. It's a time of rejoicing. Now, there will be a time when I'm taken away. And that happened when Jesus ascended. Um, after he was resurrected, he ascended to be with the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit. He said, when I'm taken away, then you will fast. So that means now, as Jesus has ascended to the Father's side, now is the time in these last days that we are to fast as we long for Jesus, as we long for his return, as we long for more of him in our lives, this is the time to fast. Now, fasting, unfortunately, for us, for the church, much of the church, and I, I don't want to speak for the worldwide church, I do not have enough data, but I think definitely for the church in North America, which is my church and which is your church, I think fasting has become something that is um, much neglected. Arthur Wallace, in the book God's Chosen Fast, he wrote this. He said, in giving us the privilege of fasting, as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete. She has thrown it down in some dark corner to rust, and there it has lain forgotten for centuries." An hour of impending crisis for the church in the world demands its recovery. I think that that is really, really true for the church in North America, for the church that I've experienced throughout my life. Fasting is this powerful weapon that's gotten locked away in some hidden corner of the church that we you know, kind of don't want to talk about, like that weird cousin or uncle at the family reunion, right? You kind of like leave him in the corner, that type of thing. You, you, you know he's there. And he's a part of the family, but you don't really want him to be, right? That's kind of like what fasting is. Um, I was, when I was in seminary, one of my professors was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and he taught through all these different things as Jesus was talking about all these different things. And I, when he gets to the part about fasting, I noticed he skipped it. And I was like, 
What in the world? That was blatant. He blatantly skipped the part about fasting. And I raised my hand. I said, Professor, hey, um, what about that part about fasting that we skipped? And, and he looked like, by his reaction, like a kid who got his hand caught in the cookie jar. And his face turned a little bit red. And he was like, oh, yeah, 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 fasting, fasting is something, you know, it's important, this church should do. And he basically paid it some lip service, and then he moved on very quickly, very quickly. And I knew in my heart, I was like, oh, that man doesn't fast. <laughs> that man doesn't fast. He skipped over that. And to be honest with you, I don't fast a lot either. I, don't, I know it's very apparent. I don't fast a lot either. And, and fasting is, it is to be honest with you, something that would be so much easier if God just did not say that this is something we have to do. If he said, hey, the bridegroom's always with you. You always party like it's 1999 in church and rejoice and eat and be merry. But he didn't. He said, when the bridegroom is taken away, you will fast. That will be a time for fasting. Now, I said the previous couple of weeks, as we were leading up to this, this fast for our church, that fasting is like prayer on steroids. Now, why? question is why. Why is fasting, why is going without food or food and water, why is that such a powerful form of prayer? Why is that such a powerful cry unto God? I believe the reason, the core of this, the core reason why fasting is so powerful, why fasting moves the heart of God is because fasting is an incredible demonstration of humility. That's what I believe. The key is fasting displays humility like few other th things do in Christian life. Because fasting, again, what it's saying is, God, we're desperate. God, we need you so badly. God, we have no power. I have no ability to affect change, whether it's in my life or my heart or in my friend or in my church or in this world. I have no power to do it, but God, you can. You're the only one who can. And God, we need you this deeply. We recognize our needs so badly that I will go without food as a cry unto you for you to move in this world. It is a display of humility. And humility moves the heart of God. Uh, Peter wrote this, quoting from the Old Testament, and James quotes this as well. He said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is who God is. God opposes the proud. He is against the proud. He is against the self-sufficient. He is against those, even Christians, who think, I don't really need you, God. We can do okay without you. He is against us when that is our attitude. But he is for us. He gives grace to the humble, to those who recognize their need for God because it exalts God. It gives God the glory when we declare our need for him and God is the one who comes to our rescue. He comes and he blesses. He comes and he intervenes and we give glory to God for who he is. God will not compromise his own glory because he is deserving of all of the glory. Fasting says, 
God, I need you in, in such a deep way. It is deeply connected with humility, and humility moves the heart of God. Now, um, the main passage for today, what I, what I want to talk about is one example in the Bible of what happens when even the worst of the worst of people fasts. When even the worst of the worst. Specifically, I want to look at the kings of the Old Testament. Who do we think, who do you think is the worst of the worst of the kings of the Old Testament? Good. Who else? What's that? Saul. Good. Good. Any others? That's usually the only kings we know, right? There are other bad ones. Omri, Manasseh. There, there's, there's definitely others who did not walk with the Lord. Um, I was just Googling, looking around. And, uh, you know, they're, they're like interesting people who are interested in this as well. On Catholic Answers, we're not Catholic, but Catholic Answers, they had this, the worst king of Israel competition. It's like interesting, right? You know, maybe it's an American Idol or something. Let's, let's, let's find the worst king of Israel. Interestingly for them as well, they also said Ahab. Who was it? Was it Samuel? I couldn't tell. Yeah, Samuel. Good job, Samuel. They said Ahab. I agree also that it was Ahab. Everybody near Samuel, give him a pat on the back. Good job, Samuel. Good job, Ahab. And he said it with such confidence. He was like, it's a new year, 2024, Ahab. And you are right. You are right. I agree. In 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He did more than any king before him to provoke and anger the God of Israel. And I, I think also afterwards as well. I don't know. You could look this up to see if it says God was more provoked by anybody else. But Ahab, I think, is a very, very good bet. Um, what was so bad about Ahab? What did he do? Well, it says here in, in verse 31, as if it had been a light thing, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What, what's he talking about here? What's going on here? What does it mean? Uh, for the sins of Jeroboam, what sins did he commit? Whatever sins he committed, compared to Ahab, Jeroboam was like bush league kind of stuff. Jeroboam's sins were child's play compared to Ahab, is what 1 Kings is saying here. What did Jeroboam do? Jeroboam, if you remember, was, um, so Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king, and then under Rehoboam's watch, there was a civil war, and the kingdom of Israel split in two, the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah, and the king of the rebellious northern kingdom, his name was Jeroboam. What did Jeroboam do? He made two golden calves. That sound familiar? That's not a good precedent, right? Going back to uh, Aaron and, and the, the golden calf in, in Israel, uh, in Sinai, back uh, after the Exodus. But he made two golden calves. Why? Because he said, you know what? We've split from the southern kingdom of Judah, but Jerusalem is in Judah. You know what's going to happen? Three times during the year, all the men have to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and offer sacrifice. 
And if they keep doing that three times a year, all my people from the north, from Israel, go down to Judah to worship, their heart is going to be drawn to Judah. They're going to feel like this is the religious center. This is, this is the king of, of Judah should really be our king. And then for me, it's going to be lights out. So what did he do? He, he made these two golden calves. He put them in two places in the northern kingdom. And he said, people, you don't need to make that long walk down to Judah anymore. You could just worship the Lord here. We will have our own feasts. We will have our own festivals. You know what? We will have our own temples. We will have our own priests. He made these golden calves and he told the people, come, come here and worship. This is the Lord. Just like, like Aaron said, this is the God who led you out of Egypt, right? He did, Jeroboam did the same thing. He, he made priests out of people who were not descended from Levi. He, he did all of these things. He basically created a pseudo copycat version of the true law that Moses gave the true religion that was supposed to take place in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the priesthood, and he made a pseudo-copycat version of it and said, we'll just do it our way up here in northern Israel. Now, this was Bush League, kids play stuff for Ahab. Why? Because it says, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Etbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Where? In Sidon? No. Which he built in Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab made an Asherah. What's an Asherah? It's a pole devoted to worship of Asherah, the god Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord. There it is again. The God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What did Ahab do? He basically said, oh, you know, Jeroboam created a pseudo-worship of Yahweh, of the Lord. I'm just going to straight up introduce worship of different gods to Israel. Forget a fake version of the law of Moses. We're just going to straight up worship the God of the Sidonians. We're going to worship Baal. We're going to worship Asherah. We're going to make temples for them on our land. That's what we're going to do. He just took it to a whole nother level. Not only this, because of this sin, drought came upon Israel for three years, and it led to a famine and, and loss of life. And, and when Ahab finally saw Elijah again, the prophet who God commanded to call for the drought, he blamed Elijah for the drought instead of himself. He said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? He blamed the drought upon Elijah instead of taking ownership for it because of his own sin and the way he led Israel into sin. Not only that, after Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and God answered in fire that he is the true God and Elijah had the prophets of Baal, the false prophets executed, even after God revealed himself to be the true God, Ahab still allowed his wife Jezebel to, to threaten Elijah and to say that she was going to kill him. After that, God even mercifully gave victory to Israel over the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. And Ahab was supposed to kill Ben-Hadad, but he didn't. He let him go, and God judged him for that. But then finally, things come to a head here in 1 Kings chapter 21. 
this in chapter 21 is, um, is where I think the things really come to a head for Ahab, and we see the harshest judgment of God declared. And, and this is the main passage that I want to read to you today, uh, a picture of the life of Ahab. In verses 1 through 29, it says, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They, uh, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed the fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. 
And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Let me just pause there for a moment. Um, Why? You know, we see in Ahab's life this wicked king who... um, went and not only worshipped other gods, aside from the true God of the Bible. He worshipped Baal, he worshipped Asherah, but he brought that worship into Israel. He constructed temples, he constructed uh, these, these idols, he pulled the people of Israel away from worship of the true God to worship these idols. He brought famine, drought upon the people. So many people died because of his sin. He did not follow the Lord. He did tons of these abominations in not following God. But here in chapter 21, there's this thing about a garden, which gets a lot of real estate in the story of the life of Ahab. And the question is why? He's done much grander things that affected so many other people, affected the nation. Why give so much real estate to this thing about Naboth, his vineyard, and this garden that Ahab wanted? The reason I think that there's a lot here about this is because I think this is a picture of who Ahab really was. It's like that app, Be Real. You know, like, are any of you guys on that app, Be Real? I'm not. Okay, I'm not on that app, but I know a lot of you guys are. And, you know, I've seen this app. It's like, if you don't know what it is, you have to take a picture of yourself when it tells you to, right? So basically, it's your master and you're its slave, right? Take a picture of yourself and show everybody what you're doing because you're supposed to be real, right? Show them what's actually happening in your life at that time. I think chapter one is like a be real of Ahab. That's what this is. This is a be real where you see this child of a man, child of a man who wants to have a vegetable garden near his house instead of having to walk to the market or or, or have his servants go somewhere else to get it. He wants a vegetable garden next to his house. And so he asks Naboth, give me your vegetable garden. I'll buy it from you. I'll give you a better piece of land. Will you give it to me? And Naboth, being a righteous person, says no. Why does he say no? Because he's, he's a mean person? No, he says no, because he's righteous. Because God said, don't give away your inheritance. The land that you have been allotted, allotted to your forefathers. The land that you have is a sign of your inheritance in the land of Israel, which was a picture of the promised land of the people of God. It was a picture back then of an inheritance, a portion in the Lord. So Naboth was like, no, I can't sell that. That would be wrong. That would be against the word of God. He was doing what was righteous. And because he said no, Ahab threw a temper tantrum. 
and walked away and basically pouted. Pouted. And his wife Jezebel was like, Ahab, aren't, why are you pouting? And he says, Naboth wouldn't sell me his vineyard. He wouldn't sell me his land. And then Jezebel's like, dude, are you king? <laughs> are you not the king of Israel? Hey, stop pouting. I will get you this land. And then what does she do? She concocts this deceptive um, uh, treachery where two people give false witness and accuse Naboth of cursing God, cursing the king, and, and you needed two witnesses for any testimony back then. And then because of these two false witnesses, they had him stoned. They killed him. And then Ahab went. He's all happy. It doesn't say he asked Jezebel how she did it, but she knows, he knows she did it. She had him killed unrighteously, and he's all happy-go-lucky going down to get his vegetable garden. And, and, and this is when Elijah comes and gives him a more severe judgment than we've heard in the rest of his story and in the story afterwards as well. God says that, you know, you took away Naboth's inheritance, you're going to have no children after you. All of your descendants will die. Your wife will be eaten by dogs in the city. No burial for her. Any of your descendants that are in the city will be eaten by dogs in the city. Those who are out in the field will be eaten by birds out in the field. Everybody will be judged. They will not even get a proper burial because of your sin. And, and this comes in this passage because we're seeing who Ahab really is. This is a petty child of a man who is wicked, who is wicked, 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 deep down inside. Let's be real. This is the be real of who Ahab is. He is a wicked man. He deserves the worst king of Israel award. But what happens here? Let me read the last three verses of this passage. It says this, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, the first thing I'm surprised by is that Ahab actually did this, that he actually repented and fasted. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, really uncomfortable, like burlap-like clothing as a sign of repentance. I would have expected this guy to just go, ow, oh, you know, judgment schmudgment, right? Yeah, right. That's going to happen to me. If you, Elijah, get out of my face. He didn't. He actually responded to the judgment of God from Elijah. He repented and he fasted. And God, what does God say? Does God say, too little, too late? Too little, too late, Ahab. You're the worst of the worst. There's no hope for you. There's nothing that you can do at this point that can change your situation. There's nothing that you can do to move my heart. God could have said that, but he didn't. What did he say? Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself 
before me. Do you see that, Elijah? The humility that has come forth. The humility that Ahab is displaying. How do we see that humility? How do we know he's humble? He's fasting. He's fasting. He's declaring. His, 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 his grief over his sin, he's declaring his need for my mercy, my forgiveness. He's declaring that he's not been walking in alignment with me. He has truly humbled himself. And we can see it through the way that he fasts. And God relents. Judgment's still going to come, but it is not going to come in the days of Ahab. It will come after him. And brothers and sisters, to me, that's a big deal. That is an incredible mercy that God has shown the most wicked, the worst of the worst of the kings of Israel. God showed this incredible mercy to him. After this incredible judgment that he has declared through Elijah, this incredible mercy comes. Why? Because Elijah said this to him, but Ahab humbled himself and he fasted. Brothers and sisters, if if God would respond to the humility displayed through fasting from the worst of the worst of the kings of Israel that literally led a nation astray, led to the death of thousands of people through famine, how much more would he respond to the humble fasting of his children, of you and of me, when we come before the Lord in humility as displayed through fasting? Brothers and sisters, not only with the worst of the worst of people, but the worst of the worst of peoples. Do you remember the story of Jonah? God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah's like, no, no, why? Because I know you're merciful. You're going to forgive them. Why did he so not want to go and take that preaching assignment? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And they were known as a cruel and wicked nation. They're the one that took over the northern kingdom of Israel. They were known for their cruelty when they came and they conquered and how they killed and slaughtered. And, and, and they were despised by the nations. And what did Jonah do? Jonah went there. You know, he tried to run away. He got swallowed by the fish. He got spit up on, on Nineveh. He went into Nineveh. And with the most lackluster preaching that you can ever imagine, he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, right? You could, you could only imagine the lack of passion that he had when he preached. And what happened? Word of his message, his prophecy, got spread throughout the town, spread throughout the city, got to the king of Nineveh, and the king of Nineveh said, I declare a fast. Everybody fast. Nobody eat. Everybody. Even animals. Animals don't eat either. All of us. We declare a fast. Who knows? God may be merciful to us. And then what happened? God was merciful to this cruelest of nations and did not judge them. And Jonah was upset about this because he knew that God was a merciful God. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter if you're the worst of the worst of the kings, if you're the worst of the worst of nations. It doesn't matter how far you feel from God. As we start 2024, it doesn't matter how deeply you may feel like there is sin in your life. It doesn't matter if you feel like, you know, I've tried with God again and again and again. I've made these mistakes and over and over again. I don't know if God can accept me. It doesn't matter how distant from the Lord you feel or how big the obstacle in your life is. 
When we humble ourselves before God, and particularly with fasting, it moves the heart of God in a powerful way. It is, unfortunately, it is, it, it is one of the most powerful weapons, spiritual weapons God has given us. But as a church, the church, especially the church in America, we have, we've hidden it away. Like that weird uncle at the family reunion. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it. We know it's there. We just, we'll invite him to the thing, but we don't really want him to be a part of the conversation. Unfortunately, that's what fasting has become for us. There have been, past couple of decades, huge prayer movements. Prayer movements have taken off. Right? There are these 24-7 prayer houses around the country and, and churches have grown in prayer, but not fasting. Not fasting. Fasting is still neglected. But when we do it, we neglect one of the most powerful spiritual weapons that God has given us. It's like that movie, Saving Private Ryan. Um, I, I feel like everybody's seen it, but I realize as I get older that many things I think everybody has seen was made before some of you were born. And I realized, okay, people may not have seen it, but I, Saving Private Ryan was one of the greatest war movies ever made with, with Tom Hanks, and it's about World War II. And in the final scene of this movie, you have these American soldiers there trying to hold this town and protect it from being overrun by these German you know, tanks and infantry and all that. And they're, they're outnumbered. They're this small group. And there's this one guy in their team named Upham, and he is charged with uh, basically being the ammo guy. And he has all the ammunition. And um, his job is to run around. And whenever anybody needs ammunition, they would call for him. And he has to go to them and check on them and give them ammunition so they could keep fighting. But as the fighting starts to happen, Upham gets scared. He gets scared. And eventually, he stops going around to the people, to his uh, fellow soldiers who need ammo, and they're running out of ammo, and they're like, up him, up him, and he's scared, and eventually he hides, and you see him in the movie, in, in really frustrating parts of the movie, you see him hiding, like behind a wall in the corner of a house somewhere, loaded down with all of this ammunition on him, and you hear people yell like, up him, up him, and, and it's so frustrating because he has all the resources that they need in order to be able to fight, in order to be able to even possibly win this battle against the opposing army. But he doesn't use it. In fact, when he sees enemy soldiers, he doesn't even use his own gun. He just sits there scared. And it's so frustrating to watch as you're watching this movie. And I think this is a really good picture, actually, of fasting in America, in our country, in, honestly, in my life, in our church, I, I, I will be the first to say, I need more fasting in my life. It is not a significant part of my life. But when we neglect it, it is like the most, one of the most powerful weapons that God has given us laying there in the corner, like a pile of weapons and ammunition not being used. Why don't we fast? Well, it's very unpleasant, for one thing. We, we love food. That's definitely part of the reason. We don't like the feeling of hunger. But one of the reasons we don't fast is because we simply aren't desperate enough for God. We are not desperate enough for God. We're proud. 
We think that we can handle it. We think that we can do it without God. We think that we can even do it with prayer and prayer alone. Now, I know that sounds weird to say. Praying is so important, and it is a sign of humility. But the more we recognize how much we need God, as it goes deeper, I believe it leads to one place. Prayer goes even deeper, and it leads to fasting. It leads to fasting, the most powerful type of prayer that God has given us. Now, I want to be clear here that when we fast for whatever, for somebody's healing, for revival in our church, for somebody to come to know the Lord, um, whatever reason we're fasting, or because, because I've sinned against God, when we fast, we aren't earning God's favor through our fasting. We're not earning his forgiveness through our fasting. It's not a form of like penance where it's like, God, look at how much I've beaten myself up. Look at how much I've not eaten, how hungry I am. Now I've earned your forgiveness. Now you will hear me. Fasting is not a hunger strike. That's how the world works. The world says, we're not going to eat for some political motive or some other reason. And everybody look at me and and, and feel so bad for me until you're going to do what I want you to do. That's not what fasting is. Fasting doesn't earn us any favor or blessing from God. We can never earn any of it from him. Because God has already shown us the cross. It is through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, that we have become children of God, that we have become forgiven. And because of the grace of God, that if anybody believes in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, you become saved, you become a Christian, you become forgiven, and we become children of God. And God hears our prayer. He hears our fasting because we're his children, because he loves us, because God is a God who answers prayer and knows how to give good gifts to his children because we are in Christ. We don't fast like the world does. It's not a hunger strike against God. When we fast, we have confidence to know God loves me. I am his child. When, when, when I pray and ask for bread, God doesn't give a stone. When I ask for an egg, God doesn't give a scorpion. When I fast, my father certainly hears because he hears the cries of his children. Brothers and sisters, as we, we start this new year, 2024, I want to invite you to fast along with me as a church. I hope and pray that fasting can become more a part of the life of our church. Can you imagine what God would do through a revival of movement in our church of prayer, but also with fasting as we cry out to God, the walls that would be broken down, the the, the doors that would be opened, the ways that God would speak. I am so excited about humbling ourselves before God in this way and seeing God answer. So let me end the sermon very practically here with telling us, telling all of you what we will be doing. And if you've been here the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about this. This is hard to see, sorry, but it's on our website. But we're fasting starting tomorrow, Monday through Friday. And I want to invite you all to fast together as a church. It is a graduated fast. So Monday and Tuesday, we're going vegetarian. Wednesday and Thursday, we're going soups and smoothies, so more liquid. And then Friday, we're going just water 
and juice. Um, if health reasons do not permit you to do this, we encourage you to join us in a modified way, perhaps being just vegetarian the whole week or maybe pescatarian if you still need, you know, I don't know, some type of protein or something or another. Um, we encourage you to join us in this fast. We're also going to be fasting from media Monday through Friday. Now, like I said before, media is not in the Old Testament. <laughs> There's no media fast, like don't go to the gladiatorial games or something or another, right? I, I don't know. But uh, I just think this is a super valuable part of what we do during this week as well, uh, specifically because 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, I think this verse really hits home when he wrote, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What is being self-controlled, being sober-minded have to do with our prayers and not having our prayers be hindered? I don't, I don't know about you, but I certainly know that the cell phone, um, it is made in a way for you to be addicted right? That's how apps work. You guys know this. We're in Silicon Valley. There are literally jobs out there whose goal is to make you stay on a certain screen for another second, right? <laughs> there are jobs like that. It's designed to make us addicted. And if, I don't know if, if you've ever felt this, but you're trying to pray and then you hear, Arr! okay, that's a really bad notification. <laughs> that's a dog. You're like, what? I hear my dog. You hear boop, boop, something. And you're like, oh, I was in the middle of praying for the nations. You got, you got to go check your phone. Or you're trying to pray, and there's not even a notification, but you just want to go and scroll. Oh, I just, I forgot that thing I have to do. And what is that? That's a lack of self-control hindering our prayers. Man, I think First Peter, he was talking about cell phones. He just didn't even know it back then. So we're going to fast from media as well. We invite you to do that. So that during our fasting... It's not just a hunger strike. It's not just being hungry, but it is actually a prayerful fast and lifting our hunger up before God in prayer. Each day, we are going to fast for a different topic. And let me ask you, think about this. Do you need God to move in your life in any of these areas? On Monday, it's for personal needs. Is there sin in your life that you feel like you haven't been able to break? Is there a family member really in need? Is there somebody, a friend who really needs to know the Lord? Is there a way that you really want to grow and break through in this new year? Do you have a personal need like that? I think the answer is yes for everybody. Tuesday, we're going to fast for our community here. We're going to be praying and fasting that God would move in our community to help us to be a Christ-centered community. Uh, whether that means a community of more love, or fasting, uh, God, you know, may this be a place where people actually can let their masks down and be more open and honest about who they are. Can we be a safe community, a grace-filled community with each other? Do you think that we could use that as a church? I certainly think so. Wednesday, for the leadership, um, for me, our provisional elders, Pastor Mark, Dr. Ryan, for the leaders of our teams, the leaders of our, uh, of our uh, community groups, for the different people leading in different ways in our church, we definitely need prayer in your covering. I certainly need that. If you could please pray and fast for me and, and the other leaders in our church. Thursday, for gospel proclamation. Um, one area I think we are weak, where we are weak as a church, 
in sharing the gospel more, in seeing people come to know the Lord, not just being a church where we are a transfer church where other Christians come, but a place where people are coming to know the Lord. I think we need breakthrough in this area, brothers and sisters. Let's fast together for that there would be a greater boldness, a greater sense of urgency within us. And then Friday, we'll be fasting for world missions and praying for different AMI churches in different mission fields and for the Great Commission, for the work of God to continue to spread and for that task to be accomplished. These are all things that we deeply need God to move in. And then each day, again, so that we're not just sitting there being hungry and, you know, going to sleep at 7 p.m. and waking up, uh, you know, I don't know, in the, at 12 noon uh, so that you only fast four days because you're only awake for four hours. Four hours. Um, we're going to be praying each day to help focus our fast. So Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we'll be inviting you all to join us on Zoom for half an hour, 8.30 to 9, where we will fast and pray together about the topic of that day, to lift up to our hunger before the God. Lord, look at how much we need you. We're going without food. We're praying for these things. We will be praying for Tuesday's topic at our Tuesday night prayer meeting, which resumes this week. We were on a two-week break, but they resumed this week at Trinity Church. Um, And then on Friday, we're going to gather together again at Trinity Church at 6 o'clock. And we're going to pray and worship for Friday's topic together from 6 to 7. And then we're going to break the fast together with a meal. We're going to eat together in celebration of, um, of, of God and Him listening to our prayers and fasting and breaking that fast together. So you can, we ask you to register on our website for that so we can have enough food. I hope that you will all join us. I want to encourage all of you. I know some of you have community groups some of those evenings. That's totally okay. Um, But come whenever you can, come every night if you can, and let's pray together during this fast. And I'm excited for how God will move in our church and move this year in 2024. Amen? Amen. Let's let's close our eyes. Uh, Let's come before the Lord in prayer, and, and we will be going into communion as well in a moment. But, you know, as the worship team comes up and begins to play... Can we take a, take a moment right now and think about this message? And is there, is there a way for you to respond this morning to this message? I know the obvious response is, well, fast or, you know, join us in the fast. And, and I hope you will. Uh, maybe for some of you, there will be a deeper desire uh, to commit to fasting more regularly in your life. Maybe, maybe even once a month or once a week or maybe God is moving you in some way. Or what I really hope is that, that what would happen is you would be encouraged right now that God would put upon your heart some, something, whether it's a deep area of your heart or an area of, of, of sin that you want to overcome or some area of growth where you want to see change or something that, you know, maybe somebody who you really want to see come to know the Lord, something that 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 would really be heavy upon your heart, that God would convict you of so deeply that you would say, Lord, I I really want to see you move in this way. And I'm going to fast. I am going to fast because my my need for you is going to a whole new level right now. My, My humility, my recognition of my 
inability to do anything apart from you is going to a whole new level. And I even want to fast. I want to fast, God, that your heart would be moved. Um, let's take a moment right now, and would you seek the Lord? Is there anything that he is putting on your heart right now? Anything putting on your heart that you would even fast for? Let's take a moment and think about that in our hearts. brokenness come may a godly frustration come may a passion for more from your Holy Spirit come upon us may a hunger for more of you in our lives become greater than our hunger for food Oh, Lord, we pray. May your Holy Spirit stir up a hunger within us for you, for change, for victory, for overcoming, for seeing the glory of God, for seeing the power of the Lord, for seeing people saved, for seeing people healed, for seeing change within our church. God, stir up within us a hunger that is so deep. It goes beyond even words. It is a hunger that, that our stomachs cry to you, God. Lord, Lord, may even the appeal of food fade, the desire for food take a back seat to our desire for more of you, oh God. Lord, Lord, only you can stir this up in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and stir up this hunger within us, God. Oh, Lord, show us. Show us the cross. Show us how willing you are to answer how much you love your children. God, if we would humble ourselves and pray and seek your face, and if we would fast cry out and declare our need for you. Oh, Lord God, open our eyes to that, God. 